Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we are in a section in chapter 5 of triad stories, stories that are fanning the subject matter of faith. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus calming the storm, and so it was very simple to draw that line, that connection between uh, him being God with the power over nature, to say to the wind and to the waves and to the rain, be still, be quiet, and it obeys him. Last week, Paul did a great job uh, taking us through the story of the, the man possessed uh, by a legion of demons and Jesus, his command as God over evil. Um, today, we're going to see his command as God over sickness and, and uh, his power over death. So, there is, I think, in my opinion, of the three stories that we've been in and that we are in today, there is something unique about this one. Because I think it, it, it uh, addresses something very specific to everyone, and that is a struggle of faith. It's, it's one thing to be in a boat, kind of sort of passive. The storm is on you. There's nothing you can do. And Jesus calms the storm. And so you learn lessons about Jesus and learn about his power. I suppose there's something to be learned watching Jesus deal with demonic forces. But in this scenario, you have people who have to step out in their faith or step out in their struggle of faith. And I suppose if there's anything common to the Christian experience, it is how we feel about what we believe or how we feel about our, our faith. And uh, if I'm being really, really transparent and honest with you, I wonder sometimes how much we really understand about the topic of faith. I'm, this is going to be way too simplistic, but I'm going to say it to make a point. Um, there are extremes in this line of faith that we talk about. There is the extreme of those who struggle. They have doubts. They struggle with doubt because of some sin, some failure, some inability, some uh, thought that they haven't sorted out in their mind. And so the kind of the way this sequentially goes through is you have a failure, some, some shortcoming, some sin, some unknown thing, and guilt is, is your emotion and insecurity is your response. And you're not quite certain. You never feel, like, feel totally there or just kind of, I'm ready, I trust this. It's like always a question in your mind, like, what if he got tired of me? I mean, a Christian shouldn't do this, Right? And so there's this ongoing insecurity. And what happens is they, we still go to church, and so sometimes we conclude, I don't, I don't belong here because I don't know enough. Or I don't believe enough. I don't, I don't trust enough. I don't obey enough. I don't have enough wins in my life to give me a lot of confidence. And so you struggle with that insecurity. Now, if I go to the other side of the extreme, there are those of, of us who um, don't have the size or frequency of struggles that other people do. And uh, for you, you've, you've done a pretty good job sorting things out. You've got things buttoned down. And you know more than some, and you believe more than some, and, and you, you avoid the wrong things, and you do the right things enough to feel okay, maybe more than okay, kind of pretty good about it. And so there's this experience that happens to those of us like this, that after a while in our Christian life, the, the broken, crippled, dependent, repentant, humble way we came to Jesus isn't how we're finishing up. In fact, we're at a place where we think more highly of ourselves than we should. We didn't stay in that, like, needy position, okay? So we've got spiritual strugglers. I know this is an extreme uh, case scenario, but extreme strugglers who deal mostly with spiritual insecurity because they can't believe that God and His grace could cover what they do or what they struggle with or what they don't know. Or you have this spiritual self-deception over here who thinks that they're doing well enough to, you know, not be humble anymore, not be broken anymore. 
Well, all the stories that we're going to look at today are going to drag those extremes, those things to a, to a reality. And so I'm going to tell you the punchline of this sermon before we even get going. And you can hold me accountable to it as we go through this story together. But today is simply a reminder that Jesus and Jesus alone is the hero of our faith. Period. If there's anything to celebrate, it's him. It's not you, it's not what you know. And it's not even when you think, well, he, he would be like me. He would, he'd be tired of me. He would be convinced I should know more or do more than I am, that somehow he is now starting to measure you based on your efforts. And neither is true. In fact, to the struggler who, who is dealing with your problems and, and the life is being sucked out of you, this sermon today should remind you of these absolute truths over you, that his strength is made perfect in your weakness, that Jesus, according to Paul, or I think it's Paul, Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith, okay? So that's where we're going today. Let me read you a definition. Uh, there's a man who wrote a concise dictionary of Christian terminology. His name is Mil Millard Erickson, and he defined faith this way. Faith is a complete trust in Christ and his work as the basis of one's relationship to God. Is that true? If that's true, then we got other questions we have to answer. Because I struggle with that definition for one reason, complete, right? If it's true that it's a complete faith, then here's what you have to deal with. You have to deal with Thursday or Friday or Wednesday, whenever it happened, when you got angry at your wife and you said the thing you shouldn't have said. Was it complete then? Was your faith fully orbed when you were angry? You know when you were doing the deal and you worked it just so that you would come out on top? Like, it wasn't covert crime, but it was just enough so that you would not lose in the deal. Was that complete faith? You, you know when you have the habit of taking the second look, gentlemen, and it just happens, and is that complete faith? Is it complete faith that sometimes we don't even get to this very often and we're not that interested? Like, we love Jesus, thank you for saving me, but I don't really want to spend a lot of time getting to know you. Is that complete faith? You can see where I'm going with this. Uh, I, I want to ask, ask and answer a question today. If my faith isn't complete, is it real? I think that's a fair question to ask. Now, I disagree with the complete phrase of, of faith, but is it, if it isn't complete, is it real? Now, I think we're going to find that out in these two stories today. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21 to verse... Uh, to the end of the chapter, there are two main people in this day in the life of Jesus. One is this woman, we don't know her name, she's just a woman with a perpetual bleeding issue, and the other is Jairus, the synagogue official. We're going to deal with the woman first, and we're going to read the first half of that, of that section up to verse 34. Let's read it together. When Jesus had crossed again in, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed with him and, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she 
She said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's, let's talk through this particular story. There's, I think, lots of things to observe in it. Now, remember, Jesus was at the Gerasenes across the other side in a Gentile territory, and he healed a man who was possessed by this legion of demons. He has since now come back across the lake. He's now in Jewish land, and he is being mobbed. In fact, that, that phrase, thronged about, has the impression that it's, been, it's so crowded he can barely breathe. It's like people. It's a mosh pit of people. That's what's going on here. In the midst of that scene, um, this synagogue official, Jairus, walks up to Jesus and says, can you heal my, my, my daughter? And we don't know anything else other than that they just kind of head off that way. Jesus doesn't respond. He just goes that way. And in the midst of that wonderful moment for Jairus, I suppose, there's an interruption. This woman we don't know, don't know anything about her, don't know her name. She comes out of nowhere, and she touches Jesus, and the whole progression stops. Now, it would be like us, maybe more like me, to just read past that event, but I think there's a lot that's kind of in the middle of that experience that I want to unpack for us, one is just to talk about her condition. She had a uteral bleeding for 12 years. Now, if you understand Leviticus 15, the law of God had instructions and limitations for people in, uh, in that condition. And, and what the law said was that while you're bleeding, you're unclean, which, which meant you are, you are now limited from others, okay? You were, in essence, ostracized. And at this point, 12 years of perpetual bleeding, you don't know anybody anymore. More than likely, you're divorced. Uh, it says here she spent all of her money trying to get better. My guess is she's not only broke because she spent all her money, but who would hire this woman? What could she do that anybody would want to touch? She was alone and worn out. She was an outcast. She was barred from the synagogue. She couldn't worship, all right? She was destitute and totally alone for 12 years, Okay? Now, the text tells us that she suffered under the hands of the physicians, and I have no idea what that means. I can only imagine the versions of medical procedures that they invented to try to deal with things like that. I can only think physical horrendousness, okay? But there's another aspect to this, that the the Jewish Talmud is like 6,200 pages of rabbis' thoughts on how to do law, how to fulfill law, or how to deal with these conditions. And believe it or not, there's a section on uteral bleeding, in the Talmud, and they have all these cures. And if you want to talk about weird and kooky and, and superstitious, that's what they're all about. I wrote down a few of them because they're just so strange. One would be to, to take the rubber gum of a tree mixed with alum and crocus and drink it in wine. Sounds like something my wife would invent, by the way. <laughs> She's a health nut. Um, sorry, honey, I know you're here. <laughs> um, Take three pints of Persian onions, boil it in wine, and say while you eat it, arise from the flux, because that'll help. That's a good idea. How about this one? Set her in the fork of a road, holding a cup of wine in her right hand. Have someone come up from behind her and scare her and say, arise from the flux, and that'll cure the bleeding. Or, or, or my favorite, to have her carry a, a barley corn taken from the droppings of a white donkey. Okay? I think they sell that at Sprouts, by the way. 
Um, crazy, right? Insane. But here's what's insane about this. I have no doubt that she tried everything. 12 years of being alone, 12 years of unclean, 12 years of no synagogue, alone without a husband probably, no way to make an income. My guess is she exhausted herself trying to figure out what are these, what are these cures, what are these potions, what is this superstition? She lived in, in that condition. And according to the text, instead of getting better, she only got worse. She is now in really bad shape, okay? She is broke, cut off from everything and everyone. That's who she is. Verse 27 tells us, and it's this woman who in the midst of that huge crowd, that's unbelievable mob of people reaches out to touch Jesus, and she shouldn't have been there. Uh, unclean people aren't in crowds of people. You've you got to see now her angst, this growing desire to do whatever she has to do, even go against the law. And so she presses in in spite of a place and a situation she should not have been in, and, and there is this wonderful little thought that it says here in, in verse uh, 28 that she thought that if I just touch his garment. Now, that, we don't know what this means, like naturally, but there is a superstition, a known superstition in that day, that if you walked in the shadow of a godly man or touched the garment of a godly man, it might bring healing. And so this woman now is at the, I suppose, way down the rung of cures and was that the last one maybe. If I touch him, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And guess what happens? instantaneous, miraculous, total healing. It's the only way Jesus heals anybody. In spite of what people talk about healing, who say it's on you, let it take months or years, we'll see if it happens. No, when Jesus touches people, they're healed. And she's miraculously healed, healed at this moment. Same power, by the way, that said to the wind and said to the wave and said to the rain, stop, be quiet, obey me, is the same power that flowed out of Jesus. Same power that said to the demons and the man on the side of Gerasene to come out of him, they obeyed him. Same power, this power comes out of Jesus and the text says she's completely healed in, in one touch. And Jesus asks a question in verse 30, who, who touched me? Now, I personally don't believe Jesus didn't know. I think Jesus asked the question for a reason, and it wasn't curiosity. There was more lessons to be taught, more lessons to this woman. <laughs> and by the way, don't forget, tagging behind this whole story is Jarius, whose kid's sick, okay? More lessons for Jarius, <laughs> potentially thousands of people in that crowd, more lessons for those people, like somebody in there needed a lesson about the power of Christ or the healing touch of Jesus or something. And, and I know how the Spirit works. 2,000 years later, we're looking at this story, and maybe... Maybe there's somebody in here today who needs to hear about Jesus' touch. And so he stops the parade and says, okay, who did it? Who did it? Because he's got something to say, okay? All right? And for our benefit, he speaks. And here's what I want you to see, okay? This woman's faith, at best, was small. This woman's faith, at best, was superstitious and uninformed, exhausted, tired, out of options, right? Ignorant at best. But you got to get this. It was still real. And here's the point I want you to just kind of remember about the story of the woman, that Jesus honored her imperfect faith. Get it? She didn't know everything. She didn't have it all sorted out. She had tried things that were ridiculous and superstitious, and yet Jesus still honored her imperfect faith. Verse 33, the woman comes to Jesus and tells her story in verse 
34, Jesus addresses her as daughter. By the way, it's the only place in the Gospels, in Scripture, where Jesus addresses anyone as a daughter. Um, And he says it to this woman. And then he says in verse 34, the killer of all sentences. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now that made you well phrase isn't really made you well in the original. It's a phrase called saved you. So now if you back up and run through that phrase in the original, it is daughter, your faith has saved you. Now, just so we know what we're talking about here, the same exact sentence is used in Luke chapter 7 of the prostitute woman in tears over Jesus' feet. Now, you remember the story, right? Jesus goes into a, a dinner with a Pharisee, and they're reclining at a table like they do, tables low to the ground, and they're leaning with their feet out away from the table. And this woman shows up out of nowhere, hearing that Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisee, and she can't control her tears. She's crying uncontrollably, and, and her tears are falling all over Jesus' feet, and she's taking her hair and drying his feet. The text tells us she has this alabaster jar of ointment or perfume or whatever, and she pours it over Jesus' feet. And then the story says that the Pharisee thought to himself, if Jesus really knew who this woman was and where she's been and what she's done, he wouldn't allow that. So Jesus tells a story and then makes a statement. And here's the story. And he says it to the, to the Pharisee. There was this money lender guy. And there were two men he lended money to. One owed him the equivalent of, of years of salary and the other days of salary. And he forgave both their debts. Who do you think is going to love him more? And the Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one who had the biggest debt forgiven. He said, bingo, right. She's been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. And in verse 50 of chapter 7, Jesus says the very same sentence for that woman and her need for forgiveness. And he said, he said to her, your faith has saved There's no confusing what Jesus means to this woman that we don't know her name, the woman who's been bleeding. He talks about her faith. Now, get this. Your faith has saved you. Not magic, not superstition, not the touch on the garment. None of these particulars had anything to do with this. You believed, however small, however crippled, however weak and uninformed, you believed. And that's what Jesus says. Your faith has saved you. Let's move on to the second story, Jairus. Now, I'm going to wrap this all up in some so what reminders at the end, but let's look at the second story of Jairus, starting in verse 35 to 43. Now, remember, brewing in the background is Jairus. I have no idea how he could be feeling while Jesus is waiting, but either way, this is how it goes down. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them out all outside and took the girl's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kuman, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Many scholars believe that Jairus here is the ruler of the synagogue. He's the president of the board. 
He's a leader of worship. That's who Jairus is. He is wealthy and popular and prestigious. Um, I, my guess is that this approach by Jairus to Jesus was a completely humiliating moment for Jairus. Now, I don't have to tell you too much to remind you where we were at just a few chapters ago with how the synagogue rulers were trying to trap Jesus with the man with the withered hand, chapter 3, remember? They planned to catch him in some kind of accusation of heresy so that they could destroy him. That was the conclusion in chapter 3, the man with the hand that was crippled and he made well, right? No doubt Jairus was in on that party. My guess are the people that would discuss what they need to do about Jesus and what they thought about Jesus. Jairus was a part of that whole thing. For him, Jesus was an outsider. He was, he was a heretic. But, but Jairus is, is now coming to Jesus not because he loved Jesus, but because of his need for Jesus. And isn't that a common tale? Isn't that how most of us end up even thinking about the claims of Christ? It's because the need has outgrown our ability to solve it. You know, that's so common. Despair and need always typically precedes grace. And Jairus is there for a very practical reason. My little girl is sick and dying. And so whatever I thought about you, Jesus, whatever I feel about other people, about me treating or talking to you, Jesus, I'm not like really concerned about those things. I'm only concerned about one thing, and my need is so great, I have to consider you. Right? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So he falls at Jesus' feet in verse 23, and he begs for help. Why, you might ask, that Jesus, does he ask Jesus for help? One is, fairly simply, I, I think he's probably like the woman, exhausted his possible remedies. Being rich and um, popular, he knew where. If there was a way to get help, I might, my guess is that he had the financial wherewithal to pursue it, and there was no answer. She was sick. The other one that's just really obvious to me is that he had seen. As much as he didn't like what Jesus said, as much as I think chapter 3 tells us that the leaders of the synagogue were trying to trap Jesus and destroy Jesus, he couldn't deny what he saw. And what he saw was that when Jesus touched people, they were changed. Hands would grow back. Eyes would open up. Lame legs would be strong again. Dead people would rise. He saw that. He couldn't deny that. And so in spite of all his problems with Christ and all his concerns, he's at his last desperate point, and he reaches out to Christ, only to have this whole wonderful moment hijacked by some woman nobody knows and nobody cares about. Now, I, this, this unbelievable moment for a father, I can't even imagine. This woman, we have this moment with this woman, and great, she's whole, and she's healthy, and everything, daughter, your faith has saved you, whatever, and someone interrupts the story and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't bother him anymore, she's dead. Now, it would be one thing if you're Jairus to have whatever version of belief in Jesus swell to such a point that they're willing to put yourself in shame in order to invite him to heal your daughter. Like, I'm going to have to deal with all my, my, my friends and all the co-leaders of this synagogue. It would be one thing to be there with your faith. But then to have to suddenly go, oh, wait a minute, now it has to rise to a level of resurrection. Uh-oh. It's a big deal now. We're going from, oh, maybe she can get better and the fever will go away to... He's got to be the real deal to raise her to new life, okay? So Jesus simply says in verse 36, 
don't be afraid, just believe. And he takes Peter, James, and John, and he heads off to the Jarius' house, and the scene is total chaos, like planned, organized chaos. It's wailing and weeping and mourning and, and crazy stuff there. Um, verses 39 and 40 seem really strange to me if you don't understand what's going on in the background. With all the commotion, Jesus says, why are you freaking out? Now, if, if you were the legitimate parents freaking out about the loss of your child, it would be understandable. What we've got here is two problems. One is these are professional mourners. They don't know the family, really. They're just paid to create the commotion. That's what they did in that culture, is to hire others to make a big deal about this moment. So we've got, we got that scenario. But the, the other reason why they turned and laughed in the middle of a kind of a funeral is because they knew she was dead. What you just said is absurd, that she's sleeping. We've, we've been here for however long, however many hours waiting for you to get here, and we already know she's gone. That's what's funny to us. So they think Jesus is nuts. And so Jesus goes in. He says to her, rise. And she rises to life. And I guess so. The crowd is overwhelmed with amazement. That's how the story finishes for us. And all of it a demonstration of Jesus' power. All of it a demonstration of him as as God, the Lord of glory. But I'm going to lean into Jarius and the woman to make some observations about faith, okay? I think it seems clear to me, not only from this story, but even our own experience, that sometimes God allows us to get to our lowest point before he shows up with his power. That ever happened in your life? Like you can't, you don't even, you can't even fathom a lower level than how you feel or what you're dealing with. And yet sometimes God is in the midst of all of that. He always is. So what is your lowest level? Is it a broken marriage? Like you're just done, like just done. You you just can't see another way out. Maybe God has allowed you to be done with that so that you will trust in him. Is it some kind of physical need, maybe like this this girl, this woman? Maybe is it some kind of depression or some kind of sin you're struggling with? Have you got to the bottom yet? Are you down there at the bottom where, where God has a tendency to rise people or raise people up? Here's what I want you to get about this, and that is whatever it is, and I'm not trying to be flippant or oversimplistic, whatever your story is, This is telling us loud and clear that the gospel and Jesus, our Savior, is the solution. And please hear me. I am not suggesting that there's insensitivity to your particular set of circumstance. All I'm telling you is the absolute truth, that if Jesus and his gospel isn't the solution to your problem, whatever it may be, then there is no solution to any problem. If there's something else, then we should all figure out what that is. But Jesus is the one. If your problem is sin, he has forgiveness for those who repent. That's just what he does. And there's never a place where he goes, that's enough. I'm done. I'm done forgiving you. He never wears out with forgiveness. Is that amazing? No matter how many times you tag up and say, yeah, I did it again. His strength, according to the scriptures, shows up in our weaknesses. That's the promise of God for us. His understanding for our situations. He sympathizes with our story. His acceptance of you as you are. And his faithfulness no matter what. 
That's God. That's the gospel solution to us. That's the gospel story for us. Another thing I think I spot in this a little bit is that we have so much in common with the people in this story. And if we, if we draw the picture about sickness as another way to describe sin, right, or our failure or our struggle, who in here hasn't tried to exhaust other remedies other than Jesus? Who in here hasn't made packs and vows and wrote it down in a journal and said, oh, today I'm going to have accountability and all that stuff. You, you do whatever you can to kind of will yourself through all the options about solution. How, how many of us haven't tried that? Exhausting remedies only to have God prove a point. He is the only one. He's the only one. I, I love Romans 7 because I speculate a lot in it, right, to be honest with you. When Paul says, I don't get me, the very thing I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. I love his finish line on that. Who's going to rescue me from this? He doesn't say more Bible study. He doesn't say the church. He doesn't say people. He doesn't say accountability. He says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one rescuer of us, and it's Christ. Amen? So we have a lot in common. I, this thing blew me away, I, and I had a hard time not crying last hour, but... Uh, I don't know what the worship team picks the songs, and I don't know what the guys are saying at communion, but somehow God said he had something to say uh, 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 today, specifically about coming to him, having him be the solution. And so we sang the song, Come to Him. Brian talks about that whole um, deal too. And I think it screams in this passage. If you're in need, please look at me. If you're in need, look at what it is. Jesus is saying, come to him come to him. And here's the promise. Nobody gets turned away. Nobody. I don't care what you think you've done or what you think you keep doing or what you think you have crossed over or one line or whatever thoughts you think. There isn't anything out there that if you truly come to Jesus, he won't receive you fully. Woman who shouldn't be there. Jarius who hates you. And you, wherever you are in your story with Christ, if you legitimately come to him, he takes you. Amen? A couple other things. I love this. Just an encouragement that in the midst of our uh, despair, God is still faithful, so faithful to give us hope, right in the middle of the darkness, right? Um, I love that Jarius witnessed a miracle right before he needed his own. Don't you? My daughter's... Dad, what, what do you think you would need to hear then? To watch him heal this woman? Like maybe maybe his faith just kind of blossomed even more right there to see this miraculous thing that I did come to the right place. He is the solution to my problem. Maybe that's what happened for him. And I think it happens for us. I, I love I love watching the church. I love talking about how you're doing. And I love how God weaves stories together of people and scenarios that you would never, never orchestrate in a million years. And it's just a sign how God is making things happen. Growing our faith. People who have like, like really heavy burdens. I've talked to people recently who've lost loved ones and, and somehow God connects this person to that person and they don't know each other and suddenly they do know common things and we're talking about the, the gospel and these people feel liberated for the first time in a long time. Isn't that an awesome story? It happens every day. I, I said this at the beginning, but it is the punchline now, I suppose. And that is this, that Christ honors imperfect faith. He honors imperfect faith. Kent Hughes, in his commentary in Mark, said this about this scenario. Faith is often uninformed. 
and mixed with many errors about, for example, Christ's person, the incarnation, the trinity, the atonement, grace works, the scriptures, etc. However, such foggy understandings are often the beginning of a deep, informed trust in God. We can take courage in this. One does not need to have it all figured out to possess a faith that pleases God. This is why a child can come to Christ. This is why God often saves those who know virtually no theology. This does not minimize deep understanding, which is meant to foster profound faith. The point is, a faith that pleases God does not belong only to the informed elite. The woman's faith was not only ignorant but selfish. She wanted help, but she did not especially care about the healer. This is so typical of beginning faith. We come to him because of some problem. We reach out with some stumbling faith. He touches us and we go on to love him and trust him with our lives. True? One last thing. I did say at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. Therefore, Jesus is the hero of our faith. He's the hero of all of it. It's the point of our worship. It's the point of why we gather. It's the point of what we study is because there's a champion in our story, in everyone's story. How unique and diverse it is, there's a champion for everyone, and, it, and it's Christ. I told you already, the writer of Hebrews said that he is, Jesus is, the author and the perfecter of our faith. His words are true, his love is deep, and his timing is perfect. For everybody, whatever he's doing in your life, if you follow Christ. And so, if you happen to be one of those in here who would identify yourself as having a strong faith or, or an informed faith, you know, just own this. It's not you. It's Jesus, the hero of your faith. And if you're one of those who sat here and said, man, I'm feeling guilty. You sound like you're reading my journal. I'm the struggler. I'm the one that doesn't have a lot to show for my for my pursuit of Christ, and I want you to understand this. He's also not done with you because he's the hero of your story too. He's shaping you into the image of Jesus, and he's not done. And wherever you are in that journey, and whatever is happening in your life, and whatever good things you see, it's the evidence of God's work in you. Now, you might have a laundry list of things yet to be determined, or yet to sort out, or struggles you still fight with, but know this. The hero of your story is going to finish it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this day. You kind of put it all together as a reminder that uh, there isn't really anything special about any person, but there's something magnificent about Jesus. That in every particular story, however great or however small it may be, Jesus gets the credit for life and transformation. God, I pray that for those who are a little overwhelmed with their life right now, that they would see that maybe, possibly, um, there's a bottom to this and that Jesus will be there. For those of us who've had the luxury of walking kind of maybe in a a steady pace of, of obedience for a while, God, I pray you'd keep us small and humble and reminding ourselves that Jesus is the only one who gets credit from this. But God, we do want to thank you and thank your son, our Savior Jesus, for being so precise and perfect in what you've done to author life and salvation and eternity for all those who come to Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.